everyone, I'm Hannah Lloyd. And I'm Charlotte Gilfillan. Welcome to our podcast, Women in Wellies. Each episode, we will be inviting a guest to share their stories, experiences and lessons of working and living in rural Scotland. We want to get to know the real women behind the wellies and share them with you, our listeners. So hello and welcome to episode 20 of the Women in Wellies podcast. Genuinely cannot believe we've got to this milestone. So a big thank you to all of our guests, all of our listeners and our sponsors for continuing to support us and sharing these inspiring stories from women across rural Scotland. So today I have the absolute pleasure of introducing our brilliant guest, Ailey Ross. Ailey, welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. Delighted to be here. Oh, well, thanks very much for joining us. Perhaps you could tell us a bit more about who you are and what you do to get us started. Yes. So uh, my name's Ailey Loss. I'm a specialist consultant in public law, former solicitor, now consultant. Um, I live with my partner and daughter near Bewley, just outside Inverness, and my business, Camus Consulting is based at the Dingwall Auction Mart. And tell us a little bit more about your background, daily, because you didn't quite have a conventional route into crofting and being a lawyer, did you? Um, no, I didn't. No, it, it took it took me sort of longer than, than most um, to come to law, I suppose. Um, I studied, first of all, politics and international relations at the University of Aberdeen. When I left school, I was quite young to be going to university. I I didn't really know what I wanted to do after school, but I did know that I wanted to go away from Inverness, get a, get a, get out of Inverness, like like a lot of people from small towns. You want to see a little bit of the world. Um, I wanted to do um, history at Glasgow University, but unfortunately didn't get the grades uh, to allow me to go. But I did get into the University of Aberdeen to do mental philosophy i'm still not entirely sure what, what what that is or what it would have been i i i did a bit of that for one term i thought i'm gonna i'm gonna go i'm gonna give it a go um but it it, it wasn't really for me and and then it become clear it became clear to me that um you could actually change to do a different course um within the same university so without wasting any more time i sw- i swapped over and um i was doing um politics and international relations and i stuck with that for the for the next four years loved it had um just a wonderful time met fantastic friends and uh probably should have studied a, a little bit harder but i did a lot of rowing instead <laughs> um and uh yeah we just had a fantastic time um i was in the aberdeen university boat club and we did a lot of, we went to various regattas um, sort of within Scotland and also further afield. We went to Durham, we went down to London, various places. Um, and yeah, just had a, a super time. All the best of us have gone to Aberdeen and changed degrees. Because I've also done that. So <laughs> You go to, to start with? Uh, originally I went to do primary education and mm. I changed and had a second gap year and went back and did... Um, what did I do? Business? I don't even know. <laughs> business. I went back to do business and I ended up graduating with business and real estate. Aha. Because what, so. what was the course at Aberdeen called? Was it land economy? Yeah, that's the kind of um, land agent course. But yeah. For me, I didn't really know, like, and I think probably now this has struck me more than ever, but I didn't really know about the opportunities of jobs in rural careers in the rural sector having grown up in Edinburgh I kind of you know you're focused on the city jobs the city opportunities um I think I probably 
I think I feel like now I might know I might have made an all right land agent, but I'm not going back to do it now. That's for sure. (laughs) No comment. You know, I'm from Inverness. I was born and brought up, you know, in the in the town of Inverness. Really, we didn't move out to the country until I was about twelve, um, and so um, and even then, it was I was still going to school in in a in a town. Um, but I I really I, I don't recall a rural career ever being presented as a, an option for me either, um, at all. Um, and actually, you know. If you were to ask me now what I wanted to do then, I I probably would say be a farmer. Um, but I don't recall ever thinking that that was even possible enough for me to say it out loud. Um, for and I'm not quite sure why that why that is. But I think that's also you know that's one of the reasons that Charlotte and I are so you know keen to do this and and to put this out there and you know it's why Charlotte's involved in Red Highland and and all of these kind of things because we're passionate about sharing that there are opportunities to work in rural Scotland you look at like Mary Bowman's episode whatever two or three episodes ago and she's talks about you know going to Ardnamurchan and just knowing she wanted to be in Ardnamurchan and then the rest has kind of fallen into place for her and and there's others who've shared stories of you know growing up rural they always knew about the opportunities available to them um is it was it Sophie's episode that she talked about sitting round, which is like episode two or three, I think, three, <laughs> sitting round the table um, with their farm consultant and thinking, you know, there's a real opportunities here for me to do this kind of thing. And so one of the reasons we're doing this is because there's plenty of people who would be incredible in all these jobs as land agents or estate factors or all the other jobs that touch rural Scotland but if you don't know about the opportunities you just don't know about the opportunities. I think the only the only type of rural job um that was sort of that I I would have been aware of was was some sort of job involving horses um and I I did um well actually I did um we knew you work experience at, at school I think we were about 16 and I didn't really know what I wanted to do for work experience so I asked my farrier um, uh, at the time, well, he, he's the same farrier, I, I think very sadly he, he passed away um, at the start of this year, Robin Pate, um, a, a bit of a legend in, in these parts. So I um, I asked him if I could, I was just horse daft, and I said, well, could I come and do work experience with him for a week? So it was it was January, it was it was freezing cold. Uh, anyway, we had, we had a great time, I learned a huge amount. But the horse part of it, fantastic. Um, but um, but the the, the farrier part of it, I just I would just wasn't I just didn't have any kind of uh, ability for it at all. Um, he did help me to make a horseshoe, which I've still got somewhere, um, which I obviously cherish. Um, but um, but that really, and I suppose the only other thing would have been a riding instructor. Um, and I, I I did I toyed with that idea very briefly actually. Um, and I was sort of it was I think I was about seventeen, deciding you know was I going to stay here. Um, and be a riding instructor was I going to go to university but actually the, the kind of overriding thing for me was not I wasn't going to university to be anything I was going to university just to go to university because I, I you know I wanted to to learn I wanted to study I wanted to be a student and I wanted to live somewhere different it was quite a long time after that when I was in in, um, in the states and it was only then that I thought actually no I, I think I could be a lawyer because uh, you've got to have some 
faith in yourself that you could actually do it and be, make a half decent trust of it. You know, there's no point if you think you've got no ability in something whatsoever, um, as in Fadi. But I thought actually, no, I think I think I could I could probably do that. Um, and then that's you know when it all kind of fell into place and I came. But it would be much easier if I just decided before that I was going to do law um, rather than go back. But um, but it is what it is. And it's that, you know, pivotal decision that, you know, probably somebody along the line nudged you in the right direction to say, well, why don't you go to uni and give it a try? You can always fall back on being a riding instructor, where if you'd gone to be a riding instructor straight away, your life now would be so different, probably. Well, that's that. You're, and the person who did that was was Robin, who I just mentioned. My my farrier. Um, I was talking to him about it. I said, "Well, I'm trying to decide whether I should go to university or whether I should stay home and do my BHS exams." And he said, "Well, why don't you go off to university? Because the horses will still be here when you come back." And I thought, "Yeah, that's true, actually." And I kind of realised that if I I couldn't really, it was unlikely to work doing it the other way around, you know. Um, because then you get settled and it becomes very difficult to think, yeah, I'm going to go off, take four years and go off to university. Whereas at the time that was just, everybody else was doing it and it, it was just kind of natural thing to do. So um, he did that actually. There was a, a few a few points of um, my life that he's kind of given just little, I hadn't, I hadn't appreciated it at the time, but actually now he's gone looking back and I've thought, gosh, yeah, he was sort of um, guiding me in a very sort of, um, uh, a very discreet, very gentle way. We've all got those people, though, that just at the right moment have said the right thing or asked the right question that have just just knocked you, maybe even only like at times, only like an inch or two around the clock face. But they have just nudged you a tiny bit in, in, in the right direction. I think I always feel really lucky to to have those people. And when you can stop and take the time to work out who they are. Um, and I have been lucky to be able to say thank you to various of them, which I think is I think is always nice. Well, I, I did I did have the opportunity actually before Robin died actually to um and I'm so grateful that I, I was able to say to him, You 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 know, you've pointed me, you've pushed me gently in a different direction, you know, at various um watersheds in my life and thank you. It's so great that you had the opportunity to do that, Ailey, and I think it's something we should maybe do more of is tell our mentors how much they've helped us and how much they've helped guide us because it does mean an awful lot um so take us back then to you finished Aberdeen uni what happened next so after my four years at Aberdeen um I decided um that I was going to go a bit further afield and so I went to live in the USA for four years so for the first year, I was in uh, Houston, Texas, and then I had uh, two years in Northern Virginia, being a hunt groom. Um, it's big fox hunting country there. And then another year back in Houston, Texas as a, um, a legal assistant um, in an immigration law firm. So um, so that was um, super. Again, had a, a great time uh, over there, lots of adventures. Um, and then decided to come home in uh, 2001. Um, I decided when I was over uh, in America that I was um, I wanted to do criminal defence law or human rights law, something like that. Um, and actually, I got in to do uh, law at a university in Washington, D.C., but for various reasons, I decided not to take up that place. Um, and instead, I came back to Scotland, um, to Edinburgh, first of all, really because that's where all my Aberdeen uni friends had moved to. So um, I, yeah, I, I, 
when I came back to, to Edinburgh, I had um, really just a, a stroke of enormous good fortune to stumble across um, uh, probably one of the best jobs I've ever had, actually. Um, it was, a, I can still remember, it was a, a, a tiny advert in a newspaper of all things that's how long ago that's how long ago it was an actual newspaper um and I'd had an interview in a law firm um a sort of small item for practice and I was going to go and be a sort of intern there and and sort of you know do that for a year whilst I waited to start university the following year um but then I saw this little advert and it, it said tour guides needed and I thought oh gosh that sounds a bit interesting so I I phoned up and um, went to uh, went to, to to meet this um, company called Mac Backpackers. And Mac Backpackers, or Mackie Bees as, as we called it, um, they did tours of Scotland before many people were doing tours of Scotland. Now there's tour buses everywhere, but at the time it, it wasn't quite as popular. Um, and they were just really lucky to have um, the most brilliant, independently minded, generous, um, hilarious people working for them. Um, they agreed to give me a job and I thought, wow, this is amazing. So um, just, you know, they, they weren't, um, I would say that they were storytellers and historians more than they were tour guides, in fact, um, although we had to drive buses um, as well. Um, so I just, I felt like I'd really just found my people really and had a fantastic time working for, for Mackie Bees. And actually I did that for the year before I was starting um, at the University of Strathclyde doing law and actually just continued doing that um, throughout my degree. I was I did an accelerated law degree at Strathclyde. <clears throat> so as well as giving me a bus license, which was great fun, um, and some income during my time at uni, um, I I also developed a real um, interest in Scottish history because that's what that, that company, that's what Mackie V's were all about. Um, all the tour guides were encouraged to sort of, you know, obviously you can't take people around Scotland and, and not mention the Jacobites, that, that's not going to happen, but and nobody would want to do that. But we were very much encouraged to sort of, um, you know, explore our own particular interests. And some people were interested in the wars of independence. Some people were very into the Jacobites and Bonnie Prince Charlie, other people into different things. And, and, um, and I was particularly interested in sort of social and economic history um, I suppose sort of around the, the mid um, to late 1800s um, and at some point um, while I was working as a driver guide studying law the, the penny sort of dropped that I was telling people about clans and the end of the clan system and social and economic changes and famine um, and highland clearances and actually that had led directly to the system of crofting the crofting legal system um, and I had known about the crofting system because um, my great aunt and uncle on my dad's side of, of the family had been crofters in Wester Ross. And although I'd known a little bit about the crofting system, really just that it was regulated um, in a way that non-croft land was not, um, and that there were particular laws around it, um, I suppose learning about the history of the, the Highlands and Islands gave me the realisation that this was actually historically significant. So the summer, so I completed my, my law degree um, and the summer before I was to do my diploma in legal practice, I was asked to work for the Crofters Commission in Inverness as, um, well, I suppose I, I wasn't, I had a law degree, but I wasn't quite legally qualified at that point. Um, and their solicitor, the, the Crofters Commission is the government regulator for the crofting system. They, um, they, they usually have an in-house solicitor and the in-house solicitor at the time 
Donald Smith, um, he he was he'd been seconded to to work on the, the what was then the the, the Crofting Bill. Um, at the time, that was several um, Crofting Bills ago, and so the the Commission needed somebody to take legal queries from the Commission staff and translate them um, and put them into sort of more legal form. Um, to a panel of private practice solicitors who they'd kind of retained in order to to give them cover for for legal advice. So I was the sort of go between, um, which obviously gave me a huge amount of um, you know experience, both working within the Crofters Commission, knowing um, how that worked, meeting the staff there, but also one of the the solicitors who was doing who was giving a lot of the the advice was Derek Flynn, who um, at the time was a partner with McLeod and McCallum. Um, uh, um, one of the um, uh, law firms in in Vernes, and at the time, probably the foremost crofting uh, specialist crofting solicitor. Um, so, um, I mean, you can probably guess what happened next. I was looking for a traineeship. I said to Derek, "I don't suppose I could apply to your firm for a traineeship." He said, "Absolutely, apply." So I did, got the traineeship, uh, and for the next two years, really, which took us up until Derek's retirement. Um, I did my training contract at McLeod and McCallum, um, and yeah, and and Derek, I mean, I you know, I can't I can't sort of overstate how uh, how much of an influence he was to me at, at that time. Um, I learned just a just a huge amount, um, not just about crofting law, but also about being a solicitor. Um, one of the other partners at the time at McLeod and McCallum, um, now the late Gerald Cooper, um, I did some of my training um, with him. I, they were quite keen not to have it exclusively in, in Crofting Law, which was very sensible. So I did some of my training with Gerald Cooper, um, who sadly died in 2008, um, and, and then some of my training with, with Derek Flynn. And actually also at the time, it was a really formative time for me. At the, when, when Derek Flynn retired in 2008, um, he, you know, I inherited probably most of his caseload, um, really. Uh, and so I was feeling a, a bit sort of swamped by it, in danger of being overwhelmed, but also quite excited about the challenge of, of the whole thing. And, but for some of his land court cases, the trickier land court cases, um, he'd got, um, counsel involved. He's, he had, um, advocates involved, um, I suppose, you know, whether or not he did, he would have involved them if he didn't know he was going to retire. I, I'm not sure. I must ask him. But, um, but in any event, and and one of those advocates was um, Ian McLean, who was an advocate at the time. And I did a lot of work with him then. Um, and he actually later uh, became the deputy chair of the Scottish Land Court. He's recently retired, actually, but he, he was the deputy chair of the, of the Land Court. So, yeah, just a, a lot of a lot of really formative people, a really formative thing for me. Um, and I stayed there until very happily until 2011. So obviously earlier you said that you kind of ran from Inverness as fast as your little as fast as you as fast as you could. And this obviously opportunity, your interest in crofting brought you back to Inverness. How were you kind of ready to come home as such at that point? Or were you kind of thinking, oh, I'm going here because there's an opportunity, but I'm a bit reluctant. Like, how did that feel for you? So yeah, it was nobody was more surprised than me actually. But I thought, goodness me, if my seventeen-year-old self was, you know, if I could have said then, you know, by the way, when you're when you're twenty-six, you're going to be desperate to come back to Inverness, I actually just wouldn't have believed you. Um, yeah, it was. I was working when I decided I was working um, in Virginia um, as a hunt group, and then yeah, I sort of decided I was going to be a lawyer. Obviously, I'd, I'd ended up doing a completely different sort of law, but I. 
was thinking to myself, so when I go back to Scotland, you know, what, what, where am I going to live? Because I want, I need to be close enough. This was obviously before working from home was, was remotely possible. Um, I thought I need to be somewhere close enough to a, a decent sized town so that I can work as a, as a solicitor, but also live in the countryside so that I can have horses and, and ride horses and, and have that, have that as part of my life. And, and I thought, gosh, Inverness might be that. <laughs> might be you know it's a decent sized town there's some good law firms there you know the countryside's only not even 20 minutes away and you're in lovely countryside um you know it's not like glasgow and edinburgh where you have to sit in traffic for an hour at either end of the day to, to get out to your to your horse so i thought oh brilliant right i'll move back to inverness and just forget the fact that i said i never would <laughs> um and with the with the brief exception of, of three years in sky i've i've been here ever since very happily so you're you're a trainee at McLeod and McCallum and you are taking advantage of all these fantastic mentors around you and learning so much and um, you know doing the things that you wanted to do when you came back and using your love and your passion of history and Scottish history in particular what came after McLeod and McCallum so in 2011, I um, I left McLeod McCallum to go and work for Inksters, um, who at the time were a, a Glasgow law firm, <clears throat> um, but with ambitions to have offices all over Scotland. And so I sort of set up and, and solely operated um, the Inverness and, and later the Sky um, uh, branches of Inksters, um, moving to Sky in 2013. Um, do that and while I worked for Inksters the, the first part of my, my posting was uh, seconded to the Crofton Commission to be their in-house solicitor so although I was still employed by by Inksters I was it, it appeared to everybody that I was actually working as an in-house solicitor I was sort of based in Grapevine House in Inverness and and working almost full-time for the for the commission which was a, a super experience. And how was that working in a private practice and also a government organisation? Because I imagine it's two completely different environments, two completely different approaches. What was that like for you? It was an eye-opener. Um, so private practice had been my entire experience um, up until that point. Um, I obviously knew a little bit about the Crofters Commission, but I'd never been sort of in it, as it were. Um, and I suppose one thing, I think that private practice could probably learn something from the, the public sector and, and vice versa, actually, having seen a bit of both of them, because in the private sector, you are, there is no time to think. And that seems to get worse. And that's, that's not just law. I know from talking to, to friends and colleagues in other sectors, it's the same, you know, and as time goes on, that the, the lack of time to think and reflect and consider things um, actually becomes more and more of a problem. Um, because I do think sometimes when you're when you're in a professional job, it, you do have to take your time sometimes and think carefully about what you're you're doing. Um, and so in private practice, that can be that can be tricky to carve out that time for yourself um, and ultimately for your for your clients. Um, whereas in the pub in the public sector, you, you it's this it's like a, it feels so luxurious at first because you you've got the space and you've got the time and you can meet with people and schedule meetings and have really you know proper discussions about things um but the but i think what i i think what i i missed was the the energy of of private practice ultimately um i think i mean the, the job of commission solicitor came up shortly after that and i by that point i was working 
um, full-time Forinksters as a private practice solicitor. So obviously I was considering whether or not to apply for the for the position and I decided not to and I haven't regretted that. Um, and the, the commission uh, solicitor at the moment, David Finlay, I used to work with at McLeod and McCallum and I mean, he's, you know, he's a, an excellent solicitor and a, I suspect a, a better fit as commission solicitor than, than ultimately I would have been. But I'm so grateful that I had that experience of it. If only to, to make me understand that actually private practice was, was where I fitted best. So how did the idea of Camus Consulting come about and about working for yourself? I was in Sky with Inksters between 2013 and 2016, left both Sky and Inksters in 2016 to come back to Inverness, and I took up a position with Anderson, Shaw and Gilbert, who um, are a, a firm of, um, they're now part of Lading and Chammers, um, a firm of just lovely uh, folk who I was really um, delighted to 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 join them um but ultimately I I think even even when I started with Anderson Sean Gilbert there was a a little seed that had been in the back of my mind that actually maybe uh maybe I could do something different maybe I could do something on my own um and I I did I did think about setting up um my own law firm but actually from talking to solicitors who had done that, sole practitioners, um, as you would call them, the burden of regulation, um, you know, if you are a sole practitioner running, a, you know, a, a proper legal practice, um, you know, licensed to do conveyancing, handle client funds, all of that, that the burden is is almost incomprehensible, I think, for, for one person to shoulder. And it can become very difficult. It can become very easy to become overwhelmed by that, I think. Um, and to be honest, when I looked at the type of work that I really wanted to do, I sort of, I'd always felt like as a specialist crofting solicitor, I was doing, I was almost riding two horses. So you're, you're a conveyancing solicitor, you're a property law solicitor doing conveyancing work um, and everything that goes with that. And you're also um, a, a, a crofting specialist. And there is a, there is a, a bit of overlap. <clears throat> but actually, when I looked at the title, I thought, well, if I don't do any conveyancing again, I'm not going to lose any sleep over that. I'm not, you know, that that didn't bother me. Um, I thought, I wonder if I could give legal advice on crofting law and regulatory stuff um, without necessarily doing any, and it's the conveyancing part that, that I would have needed a practicing certificate for. So I thought long and hard about it, talked a lot. The Law Society were fantastic. They were very generous with their time talking to me about what I could and couldn't do. Um, and ultimately, I decided to give up my practicing certificate in 2017. Um, I, at the time, my daughter was only three, and I, to be honest, you know, I was I was happy working at Anderson Sean Gilbert, and they were just delightful people to work with and work for. But I needed more flexibility. My domestic arrangements at the time, um, between my daughter and you know, animals, dogs, horses, all the rest of it, and I actually needed more flexibility than I felt was reason reasonable even to ask for you know I just thought this is just insane I just can't expect them to accommodate me um I really need to be in charge of my own ship here and so the and also this kind of overwhelming desire to 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 go on my own and to to try and see if I, if I could work it on my own so so between all of them I just thought you know what I'm just I'm gonna try it and what's the worst that can happen what's the what's the worst that can happen it's a giant failure um and um yeah, so it was, but giving up my practicing certificate because a lot there was a lot of raised eyebrows at that, and people a lot of people couldn't understand. 
why you would do that. Um, Is that not part of the bigger picture, though, when you're saying about, you know, wanting to be there for your daughter, wanting to have this, what sounds like a work-life balance, wanting to be a great mum, wanting to be there for her, wanting to do all the things that you want to do as well as work. Was that part of the bigger picture then, Was, was giving up that certificate to be able to really kind of pursue the thing that interested you the most while still having that balance? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think, um, I mean, I, I could have set up a firm um, and I could have been a, a sole practitioner in private practice. I, I could have done that. Um, but I thought actually, you know, try maybe maybe look at things differently. You know, you, that's the obvious thing to do, but maybe there's a different way to do it. Some types of law, if you're a civil um, a civil litigation um, practitioner in private practice, you can't really do any part of your job um, or any sizable part of your job without a practicing certificate. You have to have a practicing certificate for probably most of your files. Whereas as a crofting solicitor, a lot of the files that I was working on, I didn't need my practicing certificate at all. And sometimes I only needed it for certain elements of it. And the rest of the transaction, I, I didn't need the... Um, the certificate I wasn't I mean I had it but I didn't I wouldn't have necessarily missed it was setting up on your own and doing what you're doing the absolute right decision for you have you got any regrets about it no regrets at all no it's it's been great um but I've been you know fortunate in that I've had a you know a lot of support from from colleagues professional colleagues from family from friends um so yeah and 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 you know, it has been hard work at times. Well, a lot of the time, really, but it's um, some, some, some more so than others. Um, but no, it's it's definitely been the right thing for me. Um, I mean, I, I remember one particular winter, and my I was working at Anderson Shaw and Gilbert um, in Inverness and living out near Bewley. and I was leaving the house at the crack of dawn. You know, it was dark. Dropping my daughter off at nursery getting into the office in the dark, leaving the office in the dark, getting back to pick up my daughter, you know, as they close, I was like the last parent to pick up my child. They were like, you know, closing the doors of the nursery, handing my child who was half asleep. I thought, oh my goodness, um, you know, I would put my daughter in the, in the car and then I had to go and do our horses and the, the horses were um, stabled um, where the house that we were going to be moving into was being renovated so the electricity was off. So I was doing the horses in the pitch black, you know, with like headlights and head torches. And my daughter, you know, was like falling asleep. You know, she was too small to be out in the dark with the horses with me. So she was still in the car, you know, um, and uh, with the headlights trained on me. And she, but she was falling asleep because, you know, it was bedtime. She was, only, she was only three. And then I would do all of that and then get home freezing cold, you know, in snow, you know, drag her inside. And of course, she'd been sleeping for an hour by then. So then she didn't want to go to bed. And then it was, she was tired again in the morning. And it was just this awful cycle of this cannot possibly, I can't do this for much longer. And it is such a, talking to my friends and colleagues and stuff, it is a really, um, unfortunately, very common dilemma to have that you're just rushing around and sort of rushing from one thing to the next and dropping something and then going back and thinking, oh my goodness, I'm just, none of this is any good. And I'm just, I'm failing at everything. And I felt like I was just doing a, a terrible job at being a parent, a terrible job at, at being a solicitor. Um, so really, I, I sort of felt like I I kind of owed it to myself to at least try and, and do something. Women that we've spoken to on the podcast that trying to get that balance between you know, being a good parent and, and being good at their job and um, and a lot of guilt, I think, around that on both sides as well and just how you best manage that. 
absolutely. Um, and although I certainly don't claim to have the balance right now, um, what I suppose the difference for me is that the, it, it's entirely in my gift really to get that back. So if I get the balance wrong now, it's because I've got it wrong. Um, it's not because it's not possible. Um, so I quite like that accountability and I, I like the the freedom, you know, to kind of, and yeah, the accountability I think is the, is important to me. Um, but yeah, I mean, do I, do I have frequent occasions where, you know, I still think, oh my goodness, I can't do this. It's too difficult because I've got to be here and I've got to be here and I've got this deadline and, you know, it still happens. But, um, I suppose if you're, if you're, um, if you're totally in charge of your own uh, workload, um, and how you kind of, um, you know, how you relate to your clients in the sense that, um, you know, I, I will be available for a portion of every working day, um, you know, but I'm, I'm not constantly available. Um, and you know, but I, I am available for a portion of, of, apart from holidays and days off and stuff, of course, but, um, but you know, a lot of work I choose to do, um, not so much anymore actually, because my, my daughter is obviously in school now and I've got a bit more time during the day, but when she was little, frequently I would, I would work, um, late when she went to bed. Um, and that's, you know, you can't call clients obviously at half past 10 at night, but I'm a bit of a night owl, so it, it worked okay for me. You can draft stuff, you can get through the work that you can't get to during the day. So I would use my sort of daytime working hours to, you know, email clients and, and uh, meet people and have telephone calls and, and so on. Um, which you do actually still need to do largely within working hours. Um, and then all the stuff that it didn't matter when it was done, I would sort of squirrel away late and get on with that. Um, and just have being able to do that. And I was finding that I was sort of getting through a good amount of work, but also I was able to do pick up and, and drop off at, at nursery and, and then at school. Um, so yeah, no, it's, it's, it's been great. I don't, I don't claim to have it right. Um, all the time or even most of the time, but it definitely, it works better for me than, than my previous working route. Steph. Just, um, Ailey, talking about that kind of shift to working for yourself do you think that you lent more on mentors and friends from in from kind of your time in private practice as you as you made that shift um I think probably that the mentors I've mentioned probably not um when I was making that shift um but what I what I did find was that and what I wasn't really expecting was that as well as um, individual crofters um, coming to me for advice um, and to ask me to do particular bits of work, I also I also started to get a lot of work from law firms, um, so which I as I say I wasn't expecting at all, um, but was really um, welcome um, and also really quite fulfilling because it meant that you know it can get quite lonely working on your own sometimes and it is important to have um that's why cpd is a thing isn't it you know you get people together you kind of take time out of your busy schedule and you talk to other people and you learn about stuff that you maybe wouldn't otherwise learn about um and so i find that's kind of i mean i still do cpd anyway actually but um even though i'm not regulated like that but i i still do it um but what i what i really enjoy is when you're working you sort of team up with uh a law firm, for example, they've got a complex crofting transaction. Um, they've got a good client that they have acted for for a long time. The client, you know, is reluctant to go elsewhere. The firm are reluctant to refer the client elsewhere because they might never see them again. Um, 
but if they get me on board, um, I'm, I'm a different, I'm still swimming in the legal pond, if you like, but I'm a different fish. I'm not, I'm no, um, I'm no competition to them. I'm not going to take their executive work. I'm not going to take their estate agency work. I'm not going to take their conveyancing work. The work I do, they don't want to do. <laughs> so they're, I mean, so, well, some firms do, I should say that. They're instructing me anyway, and um, they were quite happy. And obviously from a risk management perspective, it meant that they were subcontracting that work and the risk that came with it to me. And obviously I've got my own um, professional indemnity insurance. And so, you know, I kind of take that away from them and make it safer. And, and it means that they can keep their client um, as well. And, and, but it does mean that the, that bit of work, everything is covered. Um, and I, I think there's, I, I do think that sometimes um, it's, it's good to have a couple of professional people working together to kind of cover different aspects you know there aren't uh, you know if you if you're a um a business for example you know you'll have a, a tax advisor um and you'll also have a solicitor and on some um on some transactions you'll have input from you know or perhaps you have a, a professional land agent working for you for example so it's not uncommon so i kind of class my it's a, it's a little bit like that you know you kind of oh so this transaction we need um, X, Y, or Z, other professional as well as a solicitor. So let's get Alien to do this. That collaboration um, is something that a lot of our guests have talked about. That when they're collaborating with others, you know, it allows them to kind of be be stronger altogether. And I think when you've got a topic that you're clearly so passionate about, I mean, we've already kind of talked a bit about crofting and something that you're you're clearly really passionate and really inspires you in 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 what you do. It's it's a great great thing to collaborate on as well. Definitely. Um, it's, um, it, it's, it's really, um, it's a, it's a lovely thing actually to, to be able to, um, put your head together with another professional or another few professionals, um, actually, and, and, um, test what you're thinking, because we all have moments where we think, have I, have I got that quite right? Or, you know, have I missed something or, so it's, it's really, and it's good to have people who are, um, quite happy to, to, to push you to think again um that's quite important as well so no it's it's a that's a that's a, a an unexpected um but really welcome uh, part of uh my current working um which yeah i really value it it's it's great can you tell us a bit about kind of why crofting and why that inspires you to to do what you do i mean i suppose that the the short answer is i just find it interesting <laughs> I think if you're to, to enjoy your job, you have to like it. You have to, you know, and I love my job, um, but to, in order to do that, you have to be interested in it. And if you're interested in it, then the rest will, will follow, um, I think. And it feels to me very much like, you know, we are, um, we're, we're all part of history, whatever we're doing, but with crofting, that seems quite immediate and quite identifiable. Um, you know, at the moment we're we're talking about uh, a new uh, a new crofting bill, which has been in the offing for a while, and we're we're told to expect it. Um, I don't think they've said soon, but we're told we're, we're told it's coming. Anyway, I think I think that's all they've said. Um, but the, I am fortunate that the you know the really the really complicated cases that nobody else wants to t- nobody else wants very few people want to touch. Um, I just find that really fascinating and I love being able to pick it apart and put together um a lot of a lot of crofting um problems involve property law as well as crofting law. There's a huge crossover because crofting is a obviously a type of 
law relating to, to heritable property. Um, so there's a lot of crossover. So the the, the worst cases, um, the ones where there's a, a real um, sort of burich of, you know, maybe um, title boundary discrepancies and crossing boundary discrepancies and, and overlaps and underlaps between all of them. Um, I, I really like getting into that. Uh, and even, I always say to my clients, you know, even if I, even I, obviously I'm very hopeful in, in all cases that I will solve the problem, but you can't promise to do that. Uh, and, but I, I will say to clients, you know, I, I can't promise to solve your problem, but I can promise to help you understand what the problem is and give you your options. Um, even if none of them are particularly attractive to you and you don't, like, you know, I'm not promising to solve your problems, but you will understand an awful lot more about the problem once I've had a look at it. I think giving that clarity and, you know, I think I'm not even going to pretend to try and guess what number episode it was, but Margie Campbell's episode with us, she talked about wanting her clients to go away with episode six. <laughs> Charlotte says episode six um, to go away with some with some understanding with more understanding and not being confused about kind of the problem or the situation they've been talking about. And Ailey, it sounds to me like you get a lot of satisfaction and pleasure from that same thing, that giving clarity and solving the problem and explaining it in a kind of way that your clients can understand where maybe they're not, you know, I mean, I look at some document like title deed and it goes half of the language goes over my head. You know, I've got no understanding of of what that really means in in reality for for a lot of it. Um, and so I guess it's that kind of, yeah, solving the problem and, and explaining it in a simple way that gives you some of that satisfaction. I got a lot out of, out of her uh, listening to her episodes, actually. Um, a lot of it run through to me as well. And, and I think that, too, it doesn't there's a there's a lot of fear and misunderstanding and um sort of, oh gosh, it's very complicated. I mean, lots of things are complicated, but once once you, under, I mean, tax to me is just an absolute mystery. Uh, but to someone like Margie, yep, you know, that's, so I'm, I know about crofting stuff, I'm, but I'm a one-trick pony, you know, so I, I can do that, but don't ask, don't ask me to do anything else. Um, I mean, obviously I've got other, I've got other interests, things that interest me legally, but this is for better or for worse, this is, Kind of what I've um, got into doing very, very willingly, and um, not not quite by design, I suppose. Um, but um, I've just sort of followed my nose into it, really. But um, I'm just really fortunate to to do work that interests me for for people who, generally speaking, um, I mean, some sometimes you have to deliver bad news to people, and that's never appreciated, obviously. But um, but not, you know, m- most people, um, I like to think, leave. Leave, leave my care sort of um, either with their problem, their crofting problem resolved um, or or at least they understand more about it and they've been able to make a sort of um, an active decision about how to deal with it. It's not just this huge problem that they don't know how to, how to tackle it, you know. Looking at your career trajectory and what you've done, so starting off um, in immigration law in the States, and then um, considering a career as a criminal defence lawyer and then moving on to crofting. To me, there seems to be a a real theme developing here in that you attribute a lot of value to helping people, and that's a really important thing for you. Is that fair to say? Yes. Yeah, I've never thought of it like that. I mean, it's... um, I think that is part of being a a private practice uh, solicitor, and... Although I'm not a private practice solicitor at the moment, 
um, it's still a it's still the mainstay, I suppose, of my job. Um, you know, taking compl complicated um, crossing legal problems and trying to to find a way out of it. Yeah, it is. It's and it's a nice feeling uh, when it's a nice feeling when you're able to to do that for somebody. Um, and you don't it doesn't have to be you don't have to achieve 100 percent. as i say in, in a lot of cases that's never going to be possible because it's just you know it's not a problem there's not an answer to every problem um but sometimes having an understanding of what's happened and knowing what their options are and being able to make an active choice i think can be quite empowering for people um so yes it, help, helping people um it's it's a huge part i think of 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 doing a job like this actually because it's not just in the legal world that you are helping people is it because you're also a director and a trustee of in um Inverness women's aid aren't you yes that's right so this is that this is a, a fairly new appointment um i took up a a position earlier this year as a director and um trustee on the board of Inverness Women's Aid and I am just so uh I'm so pleased I'm privileged um to play even a, a small part they do the most incredible work they literally they actually literally save lives and literally change lives so I'm I'm really looking forward actually to, to working with them over the the coming years so Inverness Women's Aid, um, the, the work that they do is, is, as I've said, hugely important. Um, they, they are, in fact, um, at the moment recruiting for uh, uh, a few positions. Um, and if you wanted to have a look at their website, um, there's some more information on those positions um, there. Um, but yeah, I'm delighted, delighted to be um, delighted to be part of the work that they're doing. It's an absolutely phenomenal charity, an amazing organisation. So well done, Ailey. Really, really important. Um, I think that leads us on to the big question that we ask all of our guests, Ailey, on every episode. And that is, what is the advice that you would give to the next generation of rural women in Scotland? Um, I think, first of all, just find something that you're interested in and you know, don't don't worry too much about what other people think. Don't worry if it seems a bit nerdy and not very fashionable. If it interests you, just go for it. And then once you find it, just work really hard um, and 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 dedicate yourself to it. I suppose make it work for you. Um, the other thing I would say is, and and this um, this was a sort of um, this was a very disappointing realization actually when it came to me. It was quite a long time. I mean, obviously I'm self-employed now, so it's a bit different, but. The gender pay gap, I I believe it's still a problem. Um, I as I say, I'm not employed anymore, so I've I've got no sort of um, extremely up to date um, personal experience um, of it. But certainly from from talking to friends, talking to colleagues, I do believe it's still a problem. So if you if you believe it's a problem that is um, affecting you, find a way, take advice um, from you know mentors or other friends and try and find a way to because when you do challenge it sometimes um sometimes you'll be surprised that actually you you can make some progress with it um if you identify that you know that this is going on um in my experience um that that can have quite an immediate effect um my generation our generation um hannah obviously you're you're slightly younger um but um i never know which generation i fit into these days i think i'm a millennial but i'm, I'm still not quite sure but but 
you know, our generation was never was never taught to talk about money. It was almost like a taboo subject. And I think p- particularly for women, um, when it comes to um, talking about salary, to talk about what you're worth, to talk about value, again, it's not something that we were particularly encouraged to do. And I think men find it a lot easier to talk about money. We're not going to get into the psychology of this, but I think there's definitely, as I say, from a generational perspective, um, we don't talk about money enough. And I think if we talked about it more, you would see very quickly where those gender pay gaps are because you'd be sharing that information. I think that's right. I mean, in the in the public sector, you know, salaries are quite transparent. You know which trade you're on and all the rest of it that's that's fine so it's it is it's a but it's a I think it's a lot more rife in the in the private sector um I think you're right about that Charlotte but I also think that men are not it's not it's more common for women to be in the position of being paid less and therefore in the position of having to raise it in most cases you know men would only have to raise it if they were being paid less than a woman doing the same job and that right that arises very very rarely you know I have been in the situation where um, I've been doing the same job as a man and been paid less than they are. Um, and I, <laughs> I was, I remember I was just really disappointed as much as anything. Cause I, I, you know, I thought, I thought I was valued. Um, so I was quite taken aback. Um, and I was just so cross about it that I just had to say something. And I just said, well, you know, I, anyway, I challenged it. Um, and, um, it was effective. Um, there, there was a change. So, but it, it, it doesn't, it didn't come naturally. Like I said, I was just, I was just really cross about it. Um, and almost without thinking about it too much, I thought, no, I'm, I'm going to, ha- I just can't let this go. I'm going to have to say something about it. I think one of, one of my favorite things around the gender pay gap is there's a, um, account on Twitter, um, or X as it's now called, um, that on International Women's Day, any business that posts celebrating International Women's Day, it posts their gender pay gap <laughs> and um, because companies over a certain size have to publish that information. And um, and so it's a really interesting account to follow around International Women's Day and to see because there's a lot of these accounts who are saying, oh, you know, we our women are great, our women are this, our women are that, but their gender pay gaps are, you know, big percentages that 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 don't don't quite um tie in with that with that messaging of how much they value their their women so it's what it's one I would encourage people to look out for I suppose the other the other thing I feel quite strongly about which I historically have not been very good at um, but I'm getting better at the older I I the older I become because it becomes more important I suppose is just to look after yourself um look after yourself physically look after yourself emotionally spiritually and um, whatever that looks like to you um you know, don't don't just sit at your desk for twelve hours. Um, actually, for most people, I mean, we all have times when we do it. I do as well. You know, sometimes you just got to get through the work, and that's fine. But actually, as a kind of as a default, it's probably not great. You know, so try and find some whatever whatever. As we were talking about yoga before um, before the podcast, um, you know, I do yoga. I walk my dogs. I ride my horse. Um, other people will play the piano or, you know, do circuit training or whatever it might be. Um, you just find something and, and sort of try as much as you can to to dedicate some of some of your day, most days, as, as much as, you know, you can. Obviously, like I said, there's, there's always going to be times where you just think, ah, all of that was like, just 
close the door. I'm at my desk, just bring me tea and biscuits and that's it. I can't do anything else. Um, because it does it what you tend to find is that actually when it when it becomes a regular thing, it actually means that your time at the desk is more well, for me anyway, it's more focused. Um and you're able to sort of get right into something without, you know, sort of going about looking at stuff and um looking out the window and imagining other things and you know, I I so although although your your hours at the desk may be fewer, hopefully the the idea is that they're, that they're more focused and more productive. Um, and my last one is just yeah, make 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 time for for friends and family. Um, and because it's so easy to sort of um, get out of the habit of of meeting up with people and visiting and organizing and get something in the diary, stick to it, go out for dinner. <laughs> and catch up with people we're all I mean everybody is just incredibly stretched actually um and it seems to everybody that, that I speak to there was a marked change during COVID um where everything seemed to when we all we were kind of expecting things to slow down and the opposite happened everything seems to speed up and it, ha it doesn't seem to have slowed down maybe it's I know that you're particularly busy but it's like everything has, it's like on fast forward now. Everybody's whole life is on fast forward and you're sort of rushing around almost breathless half the time thinking, oh, quick, 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 no time to to do anything. Um, and I, I don't know where that stops. I, it does, it worries me a little. Maybe I'm just getting old. Maybe that I think, I think that we all, we all have to make that choice to stop and to prioritise, you know, it's and it's it's never easy and it's always, you know, Oh, I'll just do this. Oh, I'll just do this for work. I'll just do this for work. Oh, I'll just do this work. I'll just do this. But actually making the time and like I really consciously this year have carved out time to do stuff with friends and family, you know, um, it's resulted in an incredibly busy kind of six months, but it's been so worth it for the time with family and friends for the memories the memories made you know next weekend I've got another girls weekend away um but actually it's you know for me those things are are really important so thank you so much for joining um us today Ailey and sharing your stories experiences and lessons thank you guys so much for having me it was um it was an honor and a privilege um to be part of such a lovely project thank you so much if you want to connect with Ailey on social media you'll find her all her details in the show notes Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, follow us on Instagram at Women and Wellies Podcast to stay up to date with all the latest news. And you can email us with any questions on womeninwelliespodcast at gmail.com and we'd love it if you could leave us a review and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time.